the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Alien Nations, Alien Nation, and Allies in Asia, Tales of the Imperium and the Science and Magic, plus part 20 of our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. We talk with Charles E. Gannon this time about his new book, Trial by Fire. Trial by Fire is the sequel to Chuck's Nebula-nominated, Compton Crook Award-winning novel Fire with Fire, and it's book two in his Tales of the Terran Republic series. It's space opera and adventure science fiction on a grand scale, and Chuck will tell us all about it. And, of course, we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. It's read by Bronson Pinchot. But first, here's the news. There's new free fiction and free nonfiction at the Bain.com front page. For those who don't know, and as a reminder for those who do... Every month on the 15th, we update the main page with a new story by a favorite Bain author and an engaging nonfiction piece. This time we have a story by Jody Lynn Nye called An Imperial Pursuit. This is set in the world of her upcoming novel Fortunes of the Imperium, which is her really fun Jeeves in Space series set in a far future star empire. Also new is Dr. Ted Roberts' great look at the science of magic within fantasy, or at least the logic of science within fantasy, uh, in his article, Even Fantasy Needs a Little Science, Even Magic Needs Rules. Dr. Ted is a neurobiologist, and he's both a huge fan of fantasy and a scientist who likes to examine the system behind the magic in such tales with an eye to the logic that makes the magic seem magical and not to debunking it or anything. It's another great fun read. So check out An Imperial Pursuit. And even fantasy needs a little science. Even magic needs rules. You can find them at the Bain.com website now. And if you're listening to this later in time, you can still find these articles and short stories in our ebook collections. They are absolutely free and available at BainEbooks.com. Go there and put in the term uh, free short stories in the search pane, and all of those collections for the various years will pop up for you to acquire. And for the nonfiction, put in free nonfiction, and the same thing will happen. Talk about science so advanced that it's indistinguishable from magic. So happy reading. I want to welcome Charles E. Gannon to the podcast. Hi, Chuck. Hello. How are you doing, Tony? Chuck Gannon is the author of Nebula-nominated, Compton Crook-winning science fiction novel, Fire with Fire. Chuck is also the co-author with Eric Flint of Ring of Fire novels, 1635 Papal Stakes, and 1636 Commander Cantrell in the West Indies. He is also co-author with Steve White of Starfire series entry Extremis, and an upcoming entry. What's that one going to be called? That one is called Imperatives. Imperatives. Uh, he's also the author of many short stories, including some in David Weber's World of Honor anthologies. 
Chuck's latest novel is the sequel to Fire with Fire. That book is Trial by Fire, and it is now at booksellers everywhere. Chuck, at the end of Fire with Fire, Kane Reardon has informed Earth that not only was there extraterrestrial life out there, but that it considered itself worthy to sit in judgment of humanity. Can you give us a picture of the uh, interstellar political situation at the start of Trial by Fire? What are the accords, for instance? Well, the um, I'll, I'll actually try to do that in reverse. The accords, basically, um, when they when the ten person delegation that goes to meet the um, the accord, as it's called, um, learns what it is as a governing body. They really discover that it's a, a number of races in in essentially a mutual non aggression pact. It's not an alliance. It's not an effective government at all. And um, the political situation is that uh, that at the end, when uh, we've learned at the end of Fire with Fire, that what was expected to be a sort of pro forma rubber stamp, you're part of the club now, uh, turns out for humanity to be anything but. It turns out that there are already axes being ground in the accord uh, between, uh, if you will, an older, dominant, fairly benign, but also somewhat moribund power, and uh, some... Mm, powers that are more aggressive than we don't know. We don't know why exactly. They all seem to have different axes that they're grinding, but they use Earth's candidacy as a kind of, uh, as a kind of cussus belli to, uh, to, to uh, stimulate that sort of contention, bring it out, and uh, what should have been pro forma turns out to be a sort of uh, a situation where, in fact, the accord is, is virtually stymied and uh, no one really knows what's going to happen next. Uh, it is it is presumed that eventually uh, there there will be a a convocation of this group called again, and things will be ironed out. But as we learn in Trial by Fire, that is not at all what's going to happen. And clearly, some of the powers went to the last convocation with the full intention that uh, this was uh, this was a prelude to something other than further talk. What are the species that are in the accords that we meet, um, that we have met? Well, you have one species which serves as, but is not the same, uh, which serves as what are called the custodian of the accords. They're essentially your sort of peacekeeper, not law givers, but the, but they make sure that the accords are obeyed to the extent that they can. They're called the Dornani, um, and, uh, but the, the, the the um, the custodians of the accord are kind of unusually active, Dornani. I guess you could say they still uh, they still retain some of the the energy and vigor that was once part of that species. Most of it seems to be uh, a great deal more moribund and uh, and less prone to to action and more prone to avoid conflict uh, or significant involvement of any kind, which, and we don't exactly know why that is. Um, that's one of the sort of the, I guess you could say, uh, soft-souled uh, mysteries out there that will be, uh, that will be addressed uh, little by little as, as time and the series goes on. Well, I don't want to give too, too much away, uh, but it, it reminded me of a very contentious law firm, sort of <laughs> different partners and <laughs> junior partners. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, they they're um, but that but of that that old blue book variety, which which actually never appears in court. Everything is papers being shuffled back and forth. Uh, no one can agree on anything. No one can agree on what the interpretation was. And above all, don't do anything. Um, so for anybody out there who's ever read Melville's Bartleby the script, <laughs> you might get a sense of, of, the, of the nature of the, mor- the morbidity uh, or the moribund aspect of, of what seemed to be coming out of the Dornani sphere, although we've not really seen into that sphere yet. As a matter of fact, only at the very end of the book do we hear the Dornani speak amongst themselves at the end of Trial by Fire. Uh, the next oldest of uh, the uh, the exosapient races are called the Kator. I can't, I don't want to say too much about them for reasons you know, Tony. Um, probably a, a, they, that would be a, a larger than um, anybody who's listening to this who hasn't read the book yet would perhaps find it a bit in, of an excessive spoiler. Uh, suffice it to say, though, that they seem to be pretty aggressive, pretty acquisitive, and uh, have set themselves up in direct, if calm, opposition, at least on the surface, to uh, the Dornani de facto leadership uh, and seniority inside the uh, inside the accord. After them, uh, you have two other two other uh, races which have been members for some indeterminate time. One are called the Slusriki. We know very little about about them. Uh, even at the end of the uh, second book, Trial with Fire, we still Trial by Fire, we still know very little about them. We learn a lot more about another race called the Arat Kur, which, and I know we'll probably chat a little bit more about them uh, in the course of this conversation. Uh, who, their their uh, while their antagonism towards human entry into the Accord in Fire with Fire is a little bit mysterious. We get some clues as to why that might be, uh, why they might feel that way in trial by fire. It seems, in fact, that uh, humanity is is not an unknown quantity, and perhaps earlier representatives of it from elsewhere uh, had been perhaps moved off Earth and figure prominently in a sort of destruction or destroyer myth of the of the Arat core. So they have a, um, a a huge concern with us. Um, because they have tentatively identified us that they believe as that uh, as that species that destroyer species, and then you have uh, one last race along with us that were both uh, essentially entering or called to the uh, convocation at the same time, and that group is called the Chachuch. They are a um, I guess the best way to describe them would be sort of a, a, a mixture of a variety of features. Uh, um, um, I know I'm not going to get into the physical description. We can do that later. But they are um, um, an overtly aggressive uh, species. They are clearly descended from predator stock and uh, and um, have a variety of other kind of, I guess, from a human perspective, um, backwards or regressive traits in terms of social development and and things of that nature. So those are the players. Well, let's talk about the our our human hero for a bit. Uh, you call Kane Reardon a polymath, and he really is a jack of all trades kind of guy. Uh, but he's he's very believable. A lot. He's not quite Doc Savage, uh, which is a little fanciful, and he makes a great hero. What can you tell us about Kane? Um, well, the the when I set out to to create Kane and, and write him, I really only wanted to give him one. Really notable uh, quality. One really notable. You know, they they say everybody, every hero has to have a superpower, right? You know? 
know, but that's what makes them stand out. That's their, their tag. Whether you know, obviously it's not a superpower in a, in a hard science fiction novel, but that expression, that notion that there's at least one thing they do really well, um, and and it is not in his case that he is. You know, he is not a, a trained soldier. He is not a, a trained operative. He is not a mechanical whiz. He's none of those things. What he is, is a polymath. He is that sort of individual who can look at problems and, and unfamiliar situations. And so much of what is already in his mind, basically this is the sort of individual who if they experience something and they acquire knowledge, Almost all of it is ready at their fingertips. It's kind of, you know, we have this notion of, uh, of eidetic memory, of, of photographic memory. Imagine for a second if you had something akin to that, but instead of remembering precise words or precise phrases or precise pictures, you remember concepts and your ability to play with concepts almost like a deck of cards, all of them always available and evident to you, is really what his, his skill is and that is what in many ways a polymath is in fact that they're able to cross pollinate different areas of knowledge and insights and experiences to solve problems quickly and across across boundaries that perhaps other people would not be able to jump and that's so to speak his super his superpower and uh, it it gets him into some trouble sometimes and it gets him out of trouble sometimes yeah and he's um he's a very likable character uh even even though he sees outside the box uh he um he's very sympathetic to all that are around him well one of the things that i i've i've tried to to um he he winds up being um his role in in these first two books and i think it's probably not surprising to, for any reader or even a, it wouldn't be a spoiler to say that in in large measure a role that will continue for him is that he's become a de facto sort of a first contact specialist. Not because he's a first contact specialist, because there is no, you know, there was no way mm-hmm. to, to train in advance for that. His, his primary claim to fame is, well, you've done it and you didn't mess up. Uh, so go and do it again. And he tends to be in, in, depending on how you look at it, in just the right place at the wrong time or the wrong place at the right time, as the case may be, to frequently be in this situation where he is initiating first contacts with, with other species. However, partly he's, 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 his skill at that is connected to his polymathic traits. And what I mean by that is his ability to sort of take a look at features that are present in another species and the way they communicate and figures of speech and 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 biological traits and physiology he he begins to get sort of a story and appreciation of where they're coming from and what might be motivating them a shade faster than than other humans um and that's really that's his claim to fame i guess you could say so he is, I guess, you could to, to go along with what you're saying. In in one sense, he's naturally sympathetic to others because he has that reflex that tells him the only way I'm going to understand another uh, another entity, whether it's one of my own species or a different species, is try to learn how to walk in their shoes, what it's like to to you know see from where they sit, as the Korean expression has it, and he uh, applies his polymathic abilities uh, hardly perfectly but with some with some positive effect to that task 
And one of the, I mean, his his main task in Trial by Fire is applying that to the Eric Kerr, who are uh, a rather gruesome-looking species, uh, but and they are they are our antagonists for the most part, uh, or at least they seem to be. Uh, but despite their intent to sor- subjugate Earth, they're not wholly belligerent. In fact, Cain has this counterpart among them who's really a wonderful and thoughtful and winning character. I liked him a lot. This is um, Darcy Cut. Tell us how he views our species. Well, now I can tell you a little bit, but I can't tell you everything, because again, because of spoilers. Oh, sure. Darcy Cut, however, does see our species perhaps differently than the leadership cast of, of the Arat Court. He is sort of the next cast down, and he sees us as, um, uh, well, I guess you could say that the party line amongst the Arat Corps, because the Arat Corps are not really at all warlike, which is one of the things that, that I, I think very much comes to the fore as the novel goes on. They have considerable technological superiority, but they, they do not practice war. Um, and they haven't fought one for a very, very long time. And, and so there's this party line amongst the leadership cast of the Arat Corps that humans are, are steeped in warfare, steeped in their own blood. Their first reflex is violence, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It is to you, to, to use a, a term that wouldn't normally apply to, to alien species. They engage in, in classic dehumanization of the foe before they go off to war. Well, Sarge Cut is somebody who is not buying the party line. He sees other things. He sees um, a species that also strives to to do better, to to cure to cure ills, whether they might be social or physical, um, that very often has has taken up arms sometimes in 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 the attempt to stop great cruelty. Um, and uh, and of course, there we get into that fighting fire with fire that gives the title of the uh, the first book, and uh, and he sees us as a much more complicated mixed species than his uh, than his superiors are uh, are are passing off and largely successfully to the rest of of the art corps. This, by the way, doesn't make him any more popular with with his superiors, and sometimes. Henry Orton has been with his own superiors because you, 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 you buck the party line at your at your own peril, and these two characters have that in common, and it to some degree it's a it's a bond between them. Well, I, I love the I, the way that the Eric Coor can go catatonic due to agoraphobia. That's a wonderful. Day. How how did they evolve? What are, what are the Eric Coor? How did they become an intelligent species? I'm just curious about that. From... And, and that's a that's a that's a really this is that's a wonderful question for me because it's like slow pitch you know softball with a watermelon. I, I I'm really looking forward to hitting this one because this gets to some of why I really enjoy writing hard science fiction. Um, in in that my definition of the Arcor and the problems of the Arcor and the challenges of the Arcor really come right up out of their evolution. They are not only do they look as as you said they're kind of gruesome looking at least to us. They think we're terrible looking also by the way. They 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 consider the fact that our, our face is so plastic and it it changes in such expression to be to be you know they they almost see us as blob like which is which is distressing to them. Uh, they on the other hand just to to give listeners who might not be familiar they, uh, imagine 
a mostly homeothermic, so largely mammalian um, uh, cross between a horseshoe crab and a cockroach of maybe about four to five feet in length. Um, so not prepossessing to our eyes. Um, their, their origin is subterranean. And uh, one of the reasons they have problems, and the reason they are subterranean is because um, they were trappers. Uh, they are not predators. They are omnivorous. But um, obviously a build like that is not going to be built for speed, certainly not for long endurance. It is very much optimized for tunnels, narrow passages, things like that. Their, their rise to intelligence essentially is is the equivalent of if if you can remember the uh, I think this is a trope that everybody will probably recall in the beginning of 2001, a space odyssey when uh, when the one the 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 the, the proto human called I think Moonwatcher uh, throws the bone up in the air. He's invented the first weapon and with it he's he's fought successfully for a waterhole, was driven off a rival tribe and 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 you know killed animals for meat, and, and his tribe was just about out of existence, and now they have this turnaround, and this becomes, it's sort of the catalyst for thinking. It's the catalyst for tool use. In the case of the Arat Kur, the Arat Kur are, are burrowers, and something you know, falls in their pit, and then to one day, one of them, we don't know who, or some, or several of them in different places, realize that, well, what if we put something because they notice that others come to the pit to try to get, get the dead creature out? So they, 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 if you will, they evolve the notion of bait. And then they evolve the notion of, well, once they fall in, it would really be helpful if they were really badly hurt. And then they notice that if they fall on rocks or sharp sticks or things like that, Hmm. Well, they not only fall in, getting to the bait, but then they impale themselves or knock themselves silly. And ultimately, they go through this slow process of evolving tool use that in, is only in the broadest of, of senses is like human tool use. They're not, they're, they're, you know, not free-ranging creatures. They're, they're not creatures of the trees. They're not creatures of the plains. They do not have a background in the seas. But yet it's that they... I felt it very important to define the fulcrum moment when they go from being, if you will, a creature of natural attributes to a creature that is relying increasingly and in an accelerating fashion upon tool use. And so that's where they come from. And the agoraphobia, I guess, is, is therefore kind of, kind of, when you hear all that, it's kind of obvious because they become increasingly comfortable underground. They are the masters of the subterranean. But they're very, very vulnerable when they go topside. Since they, if you think for a second of a, of a, of a cockroach and a, and a horseshoe crab, they don't have a neck. They can't turn around and see what's behind them. And the sensory organs that you would evolve to operate well in a subterranean environment, which would probably be vision in the infrared range and, and really ability to discriminate very, very subtly on an audio level, are, are not going to be particularly useful. Uh, as a matter of fact, you, you might consider the surface world to be just an incredibly noisy, chaotic, blinding, and deafening environment. So, uh, so when they get into a large space, a large, well-lit space, particularly when they can see the walls and it's, and there's a, you know, a, the ceiling is far, far above them, they get a little bit freaked out. <laughs> Trial by Fire is great adventurous space opera, too. Talk about spaceship battles. Um, it, it, there are some tremendous spaceship battles in the, in the book, uh, and you have different ships with different capabilities. 
How how do the Earth ships and the uh, Eric Coor ships match up? Well, um, because I took so much time talking about the the species, I'll, I'll I'll keep this one very very to the point. No no Jane's entries here on the respective merits of their ships. I, I will say this much: the Eric Coor ships are far more advanced than ours in. They do very elegantly what we do very crudely. You don't have um, huge uh, capability differences in the sense that they can go so many more times our speed or they can they can do things or use weapons that are beyond our comprehension. We understand what they do pretty well from fairly early sensor results, but they do it with much smaller hulls, much greater economy, much, much less, uh, much, much less possibility of failure and, and breakdown. Um, they tend to be a conservative species, as one might expect uh, um, uh, subterranean trappers to be. They tend not to advance as quickly, perhaps, as, as humans. They're, they're very slow, they're very methodical, and therefore, they, what they have, they have honed to an art form. We are, we're very, very new on the, on the uh, interstellar scene. As the, when the war commences, that's in this book, um, humanity has only been uh, capable of interstellar travel uh, for about 15 years. And uh, let's just say the Eric have had it a lot longer than that. Um, but one of the things about the human craft, going back to the earlier components of, of our discussion, uh, the very few of the Arakura craft are built specifically for making for, for war. They they don't think in terms of war. Uh, they and so they have a lot of ships that are extremely modular that are carrying modules that are are war oriented. Whereas the human craft, however comparatively primitive or crude they might be, most of those are designed for exactly the job they are being sent to do. So you've got, um, it's, a, it's a kind of, one of the things I had fun with, as I, and hopefully readers will have fun with, is, is that it, although it's not asymmetrical combat in the sense of, you know, guerrillas versus conventional armies, uh, each area has its own specializations, which are uh, which do not match up. It's you know it's not like, for instance, the British versus the German navies in World War One, where you know there were of course there are differences, but the doctrine is largely the same, the craft are largely the same, and the areas of specialization are again largely the same. Not here. There are there are very considerable differences. Well, you bring a. Weberian, as in David Weber, uh, detail to some of these battles, and they're, they're really great to follow. How does the FTL work, the faster-than-light technology, and how does it affect the military situation? Yeah, I'm not going to go into the physics of how it works, um, although I, I, I did a fair a friend of mine. Uh, I'm a member of Sigma, which is, quote, science fiction in the national interest, and people can look it up at online, um, and uh, a bunch of science fiction writers, and we work pro bono for folks mostly in the defense and intelligence community, and largely in the Beltway. And um, and the, the reason that I, I bring that up is because one of the members of Sigma is a fellow by the name, and he publishes the tour, Ian Tregillis. Now, Ian Tregillis works at, I think it's Livermore, uh, Livermore Labs, and is one of the, the really sort of highly placed people in the inertial fusion project. So when I designed the FTL 
drive. I uh, I, I sent it to him, and he he was kind enough to to vet as much as we can guess about it. In other words, was were my theories consistent? And uh, and so so I, I I went further afield and I got some some expert advice, so to speak, as much as you can get expert advice on these things. Um, in how does it affect the military situation here? Um, essentially, you do not you ships do not spend time in anything like hyperspace. Uh, there is uh, it's a field effect. And it is most similar to, but is not exactly quantum entanglement. Um, as one character says, whose uh, his name is Elenial Wasserman, whose uncle was essentially more than, as much as you can say, any one individual invented this drive did, uh, that the potentiality of the ship is transmitted from one place or is imparted from one place to another based on the same sort of thing that the, when, when you have a, uh, uh, a quantum entanglement situation where one one particle goes away from one place and shows up someplace else is it the same particle? Maybe we, you know, but in all probability, it's either the same particle which somehow magically teleported, or as as I think is the is the is the standing models, uh, the standard models primary uh, interpretation is that its potentiality has been broken down in one place and recreated someplace else. So. The important thing here is that you come from, you 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 are in one system. You gather energy. You you make what's called the shift, and you are instantaneously in the in wherever you are going to. You can't. There are limitations on range. Uh, the more the the earlier the technology, the shorter the range. Also, for humans, when they get to the far side, they are dead in space, no matter how fast they were going before, because all of the energy, including the kinetic energy is useful and used in the process of initiating the shift. Some of the, the more advanced, we know from the, uh, from one scene at the end of Fire with Fire, that the Dornani have, uh, have, they're the most of, uh, the, if, just to go back to, uh, to remind folks a second, they are the most advanced, the oldest of the members of the Accord. Um, when they come out of shift space, uh, they still have velocity and they can travel much further than humans, and with much greater precision, and even the entire effect of transition has some of the humans wondering, did they just do this the way we did it, or did they find a different way to do it? So we have this sense that there are not only different levels of expertise within the same sort of technology to achieve an effect, there may be whole other ways of achieving it when you get more advanced. So, so obviously, from from a military standpoint, communication travels at the speed of ships. So we're back in that regard to the sailing ship era, pre telegraph. Um, and it also means that when you come in, to some degree, you're weak. You don't want to come in right on top of a waiting fleet because they may have speed and they may have a, a, things that you, at least the humans, are going to have to rebuild uh, to move to engagement. So it's a um, it's a it's a tricky little chess game. Well, another piece of technology that uh, a lot of the action in the book revolves around, a technological MacGuffin, is, a, is the mass driver in Indonesia. What What is a mass driver? Why is it strategically important? Well, um, mass drivers go all the way back to the 1970s, uh, I, I mean, as a, as a notion of, a, of something that would have considerable importance. Um, mass drivers, as originally conceived for the moon here, by uh, Joel Kim Neal, 
um, in, I think it was called Settling the Space Frontier, I want to say, um, was you, essentially a, a mass driver is a, a set of, uh, well, it's, it's like the railguns that we're, we're seeing now are being tested on naval vessels and, and, um, and in a variety of other ways where you have just a bunch of repelling magnets that will send an object that inter- interacts with them magnetically. Uh, each one of them bumps it, so to speak, further down the tube or a line, and each bump adds speed onto it to phenomenal speeds. Um, in the case of why is it strategically important in Indonesia, for the same reason they wanted to use it on the moon. They wanted to get, they, the idea was to build components of the space station, particularly shielding and other things, and cargo and et cetera, by essentially putting it in capsules, which, which are essentially delivery capsules that are accelerated by the mass driver and, and sent to where you want them. Now, in, in for folks who are familiar with, uh, with today's realities and probably almost always the realities of, of lifting anything from a planet to low Earth orbit or beyond, you have that issue of launch costs. Launch costs are extremely expensive. And the thing about a mass driver is whether or not it can put it in orbit is, is I don't want to say it's almost besides the point, but when you think that a mass driver can be driven by a, a power plant, delivering its megawatt levels of power to, let's say, put this thing up independently to 60 or 90,000 feet, uh, and then its own, its own small, fairly small rocket kicks in and takes it the rest of the way. Um, this would reduce launch costs phenomenally. Um, the, the, the complexity of the system, the cost of the system that would be delivering this cargo would be extremely, extremely simple compared to current uh, vertical or even, uh, you know, whether it's runway to runway, uh, i.e. I. horizontal lift or vertical lift spacecraft of the modern age. And whatever your technology is, if you get, so to speak, a free ride uh, a, a good chunk of the way and perhaps all the way to low Earth orbit, that's uh, you're paying now electricity costs. You're, 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 you're paying the grid rather than building a purpose-built uh, vehicle that has the, the that, that's carrying the fuel and the power plants and all that, and that really simplifies things and reduces cost. So, so it is of immense importance uh, in terms of uh, getting anything that's planetside in, at the bottom of the gra- gravity well out. And when you deprive a planet of of that sort of ability, if it's been depending upon that ability, it impacts it impacts everything. It not only impacts your ability to spread in in space. Once you have a, a, a booming space industry, now to, you have a problem. All your all your earthly markets, to the extent that they have now become dependent upon being able to ship things off-world, they are dealing with increased, vastly increased costs, and that's going to have knockdown effects all the way, you know, to uh, to the smallest economic level. Why is it in Indonesia? Is it political or a scientific reason? Well, it's it's as we learn in the in the course of the book, it was it was shall we say cannily built because it was built with the anticipation that it would become a really useful target. If there was anybody out there who might be looking to target it, they might want to get their hands on it because they understand implicitly all these values. It's on Indonesia for a couple of reasons. First of all, Indonesia is a great is a great launch site. It's, it it pretty much right on the equator, which you want. Um, it's it's mountainous uh, at certain points, not like the Andes, but you wouldn't want the Andes. But it gives you some nice features, volcanic cones to to build to build a sort of gentle accelerating slope 
Um, and Indonesia it was is known in the in the in the if you will the future history that I'm working with as being a very um, it, it, it's not finding its place it, what it considers to be its its rightful and deserved place amongst the community of nations and there's a lot of dissent and dissatisfaction there particularly at some fairly high power broker levels which is of course going to be tempting to anybody who would like to suborn um, any aspect of, of earthly power centers to help them, um, you know, uh, not invade, but uh, but to uh, to redress wrongs. Earth is it's this is not just humans versus aliens. Uh, Earth has got various political factions, uh, as we do now, uh, and one of the factions has allied itself with the aliens. Uh, which is Codevco, sort of an amalgamation of mega corporations. So, how did they get a military force? There's actually it's a it's a question with with several different parts to an answer. In the first place, they managed to put in place a puppet government in Indonesia. Uh, as I'm, I'm sure folks are aware, Indonesia is one of the most is an extremely populous nation. Uh, it has, at least in terms of raw numbers, a not inconsiderable military force, uh, not a very sophisticated force. On the other hand, they also have made a sort of sweet deal with Kodevco. Uh, Kodevco is breaking laws regarding human cloning, um, which is sort of uh, is, is is known and suspected probably just a little bit more than the outer world knew what Germany was doing in terms of the concentration camps prior to 1942, 41. Um, and uh, a lot of people just don't want to know. Uh, and the and the subdivision of Kodevco called Optogene is essentially creating uh, soldiers, is, is, is growing them up, so to speak, for that one purpose. Um, so that's where their ground forces come from, and their ground forces are not used very aggressively. Uh, the, the whole purpose, really, when you get right down to it, is it creates a fig leaf of legitimation for the invaders. The invaders are not coming down to invade. They're coming down to support Indonesia's uh, uh, essentially embrace of Kodevco as a partner in all sorts of enterprises, including cloning, including uh, use of the mass driver and completion of the mass driver, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the Encodevco brings something else to the table, which is there are five blocks in in uh, into which the earthly nations are are overwhelmingly aligned. And uh, Kodevco wanted representation in that as a sixth block. It did not get it. It is not happy with it. And the one thing that it has that only the blocks possess um, is our interstellar-capable craft. And the moment you have an interstellar-capable craft, you do have... People have to take you seriously. There's a lot you can do with that, and there's a lot of places you can go and a lot of trouble you can make. So um, it is. it is very much... They don't have decisive military forces, but they have military forces that are significant enough that they could not be wiped out without considerable effort, and the wiping out of them creates a political problem where uh, Kodevko and the legitimate, apparently, Indonesian government can can reach for off-world help uh, to, to people not from our solar system to protect their rights, and that is, the, in fact, the legal fig leaf that uh, that is orchestrated. Yeah. Those slimy traitors. <laughs> Pardon me? Those slimy traitors. 
Well, that's you know, I I, I have to say, um, having having spent a little time, uh, I, I I've been on Wall Street for some interesting moments, um, and I have seen profit motivate behavior that is just amazing. <laughs> that's all I'm going to say. And uh, and there's a, and I'm not saying that nations are are, are wonderful and, and and beautiful and never make mistakes and can always be trusted or anything vaguely like that, but the uh, the, the greed is good philosophy when taken can when taken to an extreme in its in its own I guess you could say cultural fishbowl uh, can have people do things that I think it is not at all unreasonable to think that somebody would think so to speak outside their pack if if it meant uh, preserve if that was the better way to preserve one's interest and free and and I guess the way they would put it is uh, freedom of market and influence. Um, but yeah, that's uh, there. I, I, I certainly don't write them to be terribly likable individuals, although they think they're doing things for you know. If, if people understand, I'm sure everybody knows somebody such as we see uh, in in the higher positions at Codepco. I'm sure everybody, every reader will say, "I know that guy or that gal." <laughs> Well, um, we do have some great women characters in the book as well, um, both villains uh, in Kodevco and some heroines. Uh, for instance, Opal, Kane's maybe love interest, uh, maybe not. She's a real uh, effective warrior. What's her background? Well, her background is um, is Army and with, uh, with training in a number of, of interesting areas. She actually is the oldest living sleeper. What what that means very briefly is one of the technologies which was which comes up out of medical technology and is then matured in the latter part of the uh, of this century, the much latter part, uh, is is cryogenic. It's called sleep, uh, and it is not it is not cryogenic in the sense of actually frozen. That's the whole point, and it's a mixture of things that that. You put in fluids such that the freezing point of blood is no longer that of water. It's actually somewhat lower than that, and you don't you don't let anything freeze. You allow there to be some life function if possible, or in some cases uh, not. But but you're you're always avoiding crystallization. And the bottom line is she was one of the first ones who, for medical reasons, was was put into uh, cryogenic stasis. Um, because they were not able to take care of her in the field the way she was wounded. So she wakes up, she's 60 years out of her time, and she comes into the world knowing no one. Her, you know, her very youngest relatives are, at the time, are, are pretty, they're elderly, uh, and, and are, they don't know her. She's been considered dead for two or three generations. And she's originally brought on as a bodyguard for King Riordan without him even knowing it. Um, and so she is extremely capable. She's really used to uh, being a, um, a, a a pretty a pretty tough, pretty self-reliant uh, sort of uh, sort of commander, and she does so. Um, one of the things that I, I sometimes wonder if some of I, I suspect Bane readers will pick up on this, but I'm not sure that always external uh, reviewers do, is that the fact that she really doesn't have any family really shapes. Uh, the, the sort of rapid emotional affiliations she makes. Because she is, she is a person who has essentially, if you will, she's taken a one-way trip forward into time, more than half a century. And that's, that's not minor. And human beings will perhaps, 
uh, act in certain ways and make relationships with certain speeds in that sort of scenario that they wouldn't if they just woke up after, let's say, being in a coma for a month. Um, and that's a really important, I, I would say, footnote to always bear in mind when looking at that character and what she does and why and when. Yeah, that's a one of the, that's a great theme that travels that that flows through a lot of really good science fiction as well. That sort of um, waking up and the world has changed completely, but you're still you. Character. Think about the Forever War and books like that. Mm-hmm. Yep. So uh, there are science fiction writers who take humanity like as a pestilence, uh, we see a lot of those at other publishing houses, <laughs> but you have a more hopeful tack. Uh, you even have Darcy Coote say of us, um, they are innovative, they can change their ideas very rapidly when pursuing a goal if they must. Do you really think there's a chance humans are something special in the galaxy, or did you just make it, you write them that way for the book? And if you do, why might that be? Um, well, the sample size of one. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea regarding the galaxy. I, I will say that one of the things that, that motivated me to write this entire series, as a matter of fact, and I, I can only speak so much to this before I get into uh, spoiler zones again, um, but without treading carefully to stay away from those, I find it compelling that human beings are able to engage in, and this is what, what we were talking earlier about, how Darcy Cook sees us versus his, his leader test, um, that we can be capable of such sustained savage conflict, and yet we manage to move forward. Um, we've, obviously, we've had some, some big fallbacks and big diebacks. We, you know, the... The fall of the Roman Empire, while perhaps over-advertised as a, you know, it's the Dark Ages, yes, but it's the Dark Ages for a part of the world. It's just the part that Western literature and, and history tends to focus on, and, and we're left with this, this sense that the whole world plunges into darkness. No, the whole Western world, uh, the, the Western Western world um, plunges into darkness. Uh, that's not the case around uh, around the Mediterranean and and down towards Byzantium, and etc. Um, whether we're special or not, well, I think that any species which can tread that can walk that line between destruction, self destruction, if you will. And yet creativity and, and the ability to grow and the ability to learn. Um, I think, I think any, any species which comes to intelligence, um, with, with, through conflict rather than by diminishing conflict can at least claim that it has, it has followed a far more arduous path. Um, for instance, if we were to run into insect intelligences, hive minds out there, and, and whether one believes in these or not, let's just use that as a, because it's a common trope. I mean, my gosh, that's one of science fiction's oldest tropes, I guess. One of the things that, that you get to about that pretty quickly is that there's something inherently additive about that. There may have been hives that, if you, that, if you will, were in conflict with each other over resources, but there's almost a, a, a suggestion there that, that all the messy bits of pluralism and individual thought and desire and contending interests and all of that is is largely is largely uh, eliminated 
we we have these sort of monoliths of of control contending with each other, and apparently by the time they get into space, as they're usually represented, they are indeed monolithic. They are the one, the hegemon of their entire species, not merely by by political striving, but but by physiology and whatever their genetics are by that that point. For humanity to do it, given as given how contentious we are, I think that's a pretty incredible achievement. So um, maybe I'm partial <laughs> to my own origins, but uh, but that's that's one of the reasons that I, I I tend to be, I guess you'd say, optimistic. Ultimately, I think it I think it's for instance significant that um, because I'm a child of the '60s and I remember hearing those air raid sirens. And you never knew right away whether they were drills or not. And where I lived, the question was, is it's either a drill or it's not. And if it's not, it's 11 minutes if that's coming in from a sub, or 32 minutes that's coming in, that ICBM is coming in from the poles. And that we managed to, by hook, by crook, by luck, but also there was there were mistakes. We got lucky when it came to mistakes. But in general, it was overwhelmingly prudence. The ability to design those weapons to 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 play what was a very unwise game the the entire Cold War brinksmanship, but the fact of the matter is even having been foolish enough perhaps to enter into that game as a species, we nonetheless found a way to get out. We got lucky a couple of times, but we we I'm not saying that there's no threat anymore, but we've passed the what I would call the moment of easiest Armageddon, and that I think is is something for which we we should be duly proud of ourselves. And I think it's actually, I look at that as the sort of thing where you say, you, you look across, quote, the, the, the lines of the Cold War, and I always thought to myself, whatever else you can say about the folks across that line, they are part of this scenario that is somehow maintaining equilibrium. I'm not sure that what's going on in various parts of the Middle East right now can say that. Uh, but certainly the superpower states of that era have that in common. No one, no one lost their head because if anybody had, we would probably not be here to talk about it. And that's also where fire with fire comes from in the sense that, uh, this trait, let's say that whether or not we're something special in the galaxy, that ability to maximize aggression at the same time that you are minimizing loss and maximizing recovery so that so that almost every aggressive experience becomes a new platform upon which you build even more um, that i suspect would be pretty rare simply because it's hard to imagine us being taking that to a further degree than we are it's, it's we've come right to that ragged edge and and i wonder if that wouldn't be an attribute that certain species that would find desirable. The book is Trial by Fire by human partisan Charles E. Gannon. Uh, it's the, <laughs> the rip-roaring, complex, and fun sequel to Nebula-nominated and Compton Crook Award-winning Fire with Fire, and it's now at booksellers everywhere. Chuck, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Tony, as always, uh, a great Great fun being here. Great fun um, engaging in a conversation with, if by remote, with so much of the Bain readership. And uh, I always look forward to meeting more of them in person whenever I get the chance. So anybody out there, you see me at a con, um, please come up to me, say hi. I, I love meeting you guys. 
And now, here's part 20 of our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. This portion of Hard Magic is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Here's what has gone before. It's the 1930s in America, but it's an America that has been magically changed. In the 1860s, a handful of people from all walks of life were visited with special magical talents, and each generation more are affected. These people are called actives. Most actives use their power for good, but some don't. Jake Sullivan is a private eye. He's also a former soldier, an ex-con, and an active heavy, the type of active that controls the force of gravity. Jake's good at that, and he's good at pounding things in general. Another active is young Faye, who is an active traveler. She's been on the run from magic-wielding goons who have killed her grandfather, and they want to do the same to Faye. Now, rescued by a strange group of actives, she, like Jake Sullivan, is being recruited by a mysterious secret society dedicated to seeing humanity through a possible magical-based apocalypse. These are known as the Grimnor Knights. If the Grimnor are to be believed, the evil forces of magic introduced into the world have reached a peak, and the finale for humankind may be about to begin. Here is Bronson Pinchot with part 20 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. Western Colorado so you're a secret organization that protects actives. Sullivan took a long drag from the second cigarette he'd bombed off of Garrett. The train was rolling into the sunset, and the dining car only had a few other people in it, including a young couple, a businessman, an old woman, and the bored waiter loafing at the far side of the cabin. Nobody was close enough to listen in. And fights evil magic. Basically, yes. Define evil. It's pretty self-explanatory, Garrett exclaimed. Dan, one man's evil is another man's politics. Sullivan had once gone to prison for doing what he knew to be the right thing, and that wasn't too long after fighting in a war where both sides thought of themselves as the good guys. But that didn't stop them from slaughtering each other by the thousands with every tool at hand. I can't define evil, but I sure as hell know when I see it, Heinrich said. Sullivan grunted in affirmation. I thought you said Dan was the one that was good with words. We do whatever it takes to stop those who would use magic to enslave others. On the other hand, we also fight those who would punish all magicals for the actions of a few— there are powerful actives who would like to put the entire world under their boot. They see themselves as the logical end of the eugenicist's argument, the answer to Darwin's theory. On the other side are the normals who are so scared of magic that they would love nothing more than to just stamp us out of existence. Sullivan had smoked the fag down to nothing and stubbed it out in the ashtray. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. So, if it's so good, why is it secret? Those of us that join the society must fight in the shadows. 
There are forces at work, whole nations, and things even bigger than nations that would have us fail. They'd hunt us down, and if they couldn't destroy us, they'd kill everyone we love. Sullivan pondered Dan's last few words. He seemed to be telling the truth, or at least he believed he was. Does the U.S. government know about you? Parts of it, Garrett said hesitantly, glancing around the room. It's complicated. I'm an American first, active second, Sullivan growled. Despite it being run by a bunch of idiots, Sullivan loved his country and his loyalty ran deep. His older brother, Matt, had often made fun of him for it, but Sullivan was at heart a patriotic man. There are grim noir in every country. We'd never ask any of them to do anything that goes against conscience. Listen, I can't tell you too much. I've been asked to make you an offer. Your talents would be invaluable, but if you turn us down, the less you know, the better off you are. You join us, and then I can answer all your questions. What's in it for me? Sullivan asked, expecting the usual answers for when someone was trying to hire out some muscle. Cash, booze, dames. Daniel cleared his throat and leaned forward, looking him square in the eye. You get to learn more about magic than you ever thought possible, and you get to make a difference. That wasn't the answer he was expecting. That answer felt good, but it also made him suspicious. He checked his head again, but unless Garrett was the best mouth ever, he could sense no intrusion. But life had bit him too many times to not be apprehensive. Who runs the show? What? Heinrich gave a sardonic laugh. So maybe when you take that bit of intelligence back to J. Edgar Hoover, all will be forgiven? That was a sore spot. Screw you, Fade. So... You're ashamed that you hunted down your own kind, aren't you? Sullivan raised his voice slightly. I agreed to help the B.I., but only went after murderers. That was the deal. Like Delilah Jones, Heinrich spat. It was being lied to about Delilah that had sent Sullivan down this path to begin with. They told me she was a cold-blooded killer. I bought it. How is she? Alive which is more than I could say than if you'd succeeded. All she had done was defend herself from the men who had already shot her father to bits. Good work there. If we had not come to save her, she'd be dead by now, picked out of the jail cell you put her in for the convenience of the Imperium. Heinrich's face was getting red. And you question our honor, our judgment? I think not heavy. Something he'd said had set the young German off. Maybe Sullivan had finally met somebody as distrusting as he was. Easy, Heinrich, Garrett cautioned. I can't answer that yet, Jake. You must understand. Damn it, he was tired of being lied to, sick of being kept in the dark by everyone around him. His patience was done. Sullivan lurched out of the booth, hands on the table to hold himself steady. His body ached beyond comprehension, and he was in a foul mood. I'm not taking a job if I can't even know who I'm working for, so I'll just be getting off at the next town. Thanks for the dinner and the duds, but I consider them payback for the ones I wrecked falling off that blimp. Garrett shook his head sadly. 
Sorry to hear that, pal. I'd say that this was a wasted trip, but we did kill an iron guard. Don't get to do that every day. What are you going to do about the B.I.? We'll work something out, Sullivan muttered, dreading the thought of Rockville. He'd need to come up with a story that would satisfy Hoover as to why he'd gone to visit Torrio and then managed to destroy an entire hotel. Easy as pie. So long, boys. Thanks for helping me ice that jab. And tell Delilah I'm real sorry. So long, Heavy, Heinrich said. I knew this was a mistake from the... He froze. Looking down at his fingers, Garrett suddenly flinched and curled his hand into a fist. Sullivan paused, noticing that both men were looking at their rings. Heinrich suddenly rose and swept all of the dishes and cups onto the floor, spilling coffee across the linoleum. The other patrons startled, and the old lady glared at them disapprovingly. Daniel jumped into the aisle and shouted, Attention, passengers, everyone needs to go back to their cabins right now. This is not a big deal, and you will remember being asked to move by the conductor. The other passengers got up and headed vacantly for the exits. Sullivan felt the words slamming around inside his skull. Garrett's power was staggering, and he felt a strong urge to walk right out, but he focused on a spot on the wall until the feeling subsided. Thank you, everyone. Have a pleasant evening. Garrett made eye contact with Sullivan as he passed, as if surprised to see him sticking around. Hey, waiter, lock the doors and get out. You need a ten-minute smoke break. Right away, sir, the waiter complied without question. There had been no finesse there, just the power of suggestion wielded like a club. Garrett may have looked like a balding, nebbishy librarian, but he was one of the strongest actives Sullivan had yet encountered. Heinrich grabbed the salt shaker, unscrewed the lid, and poured it onto their hastily cleared table. He stuck a finger into the pile and stirred until he'd made a circle four inches across. Don't just stand there, Heavy. Fetch me a glass of water. Curious, Sullivan complied, picked up a cup from the next table, and handed it over. Heinrich stuck two fingers in the water and swirled it about, then took them out and drew two symbols in the center of the circle of salt. Garrett returned from checking the doors a moment later. You better get out of here. We just got the kind of signal that means one of those things that you don't want to know about is going down. Well, now I'm curious. Heinrich said a few words under his breath as he stared into the circle. At first Sullivan thought it was German, but it was something different and unfamiliar. There was a drumming noise at first indistinguishable from the wheels on the track, but it grew in pitch until it was just a ringing in the ears. The room seemed to flex, almost like when Sullivan was testing his own power, and then a white glow appeared as the salt seemed to ignite. It burned brightly, as if it were being fused into a solid object. It floated up from the table and rotated until it was facing them at eye level. It was like looking at a tiny motion picture, like one of those new television devices. There were people moving in the circle, but they were slightly hazy, and he could see the train's window through them. Daniel, Heinrich, this is Lance. Can you hear me? A face appeared in the floating circle, a blunt-nosed man with a lumberjack's beard. Got you, Lance, Garrett replied. Injuries forgotten, Sullivan moved around to the side. 
No matter where he stood, the porthole seemed to turn to face him so he could see the same picture. He couldn't believe it. This wasn't a power that resided inside someone. This was magic on its own, like something from an old fairy tale. Heinrich had just cast an actual spell, which, according to everything he'd ever read, was totally impossible. Do you remember the stories about the Geotel? the man in the circle asked. Of course, Daniel replied. Oh, no. Did he find part of it? It looks like he got part of the Portuguese and probably the blueprints from Jones. The mouth swore under his breath. This is bad, very bad. Will he be able to build one? The Geotel, what's that? Heinrich asked. No time to explain, Lance said. We don't know if the chairman's got enough to figure one out yet or not. Where are you? We're on the Pullman, Denver to Ogden. We're almost in Utah now, Garrett responded. You're the closest to Christensen. Make sure he's all right. Hold on, the general needs to speak with you. The view of the circle shifted, careening wildly about and Sullivan saw several other people, including an old, bald man who looked strangely familiar, and a young girl in a rough dress. Then the view seemed to lift and settle downward, so that it was looking into the face of a man lying flat on his back in bed. The man had to be over a hundred years old. His face was like a skull, crossed with purple veins, milky, cataract-filled eyes with gray skin stretched tight over it, mottled with blotches and bruises. Tubes had been run into his nostrils. Garrett! His voice was almost a whisper, and Sullivan was impressed that he could do that much. Get to Sven as quickly as you can. Recover the device that was in his protection. Yes, General. Apparently those eyes could still see. Is this the heavy? He stepped forward. I'm Jake Sullivan. Who are you? We've met before, Sergeant Sullivan. Turns out I pinned a citation star on you myself. After the armistice, it was too bad you served under General Roosevelt, because from your reputation, I certainly could have used a man like you. Sullivan scowled, studying the diseased face. It couldn't be. The man who had done that honor had been a strong man, and it hadn't been that long ago. General Pershing? In the flesh, or what's left of it. Sullivan was speechless. John J. Pershing, supreme commander of the American Expeditionary Force in the Great War, had disappeared from public life three years before. This was the greatest military commander alive, the highest-ranking general in U.S. history, and they'd even talked about running him for president a little while back. Sir, what happened? I've been assassinated. I just haven't given the bastards the satisfaction of dying just yet. Welcome to the Grim Noir, Sullivan. I haven't exactly enlisted yet. Then consider yourself drafted, son. All hell's about to break loose. Sullivan hesitated, unsure what to say. Sir, I, I don't. I'm asking you, 
one soldier to another for your help. This is not a small thing, I ask, and it will be dangerous, and it will be a sacrifice, but it is the right thing to do. It is the right thing for your country and your people and your God. And for all that you hold sacred, you have my word. It ain't like you've got anything better going on. I'll need to get J. Edgar Hoover off my back. I won't be much good to you as a fugitive. Important men owe me favors. It's done. Garrett, bring this man up to speed. Go get Christensen. Protect that device at all costs. Burn any Imperium that get in your way. Burn them down. Then get back here. Any questions? Heinrich and Daniel simultaneously said, No, sir. Sullivan had a thousand questions, but he just nodded. Do not fail. The picture disappeared, leaving a circle of fused salt hanging in the air. The glow dissipated. The circle fell to the table and shattered into bits. I suppose that answers my question about who called the shots, Sullivan said. That was part 20 of the complete audiobook serialization of Hard Magic by Larry Correa, read by Bronson Pinchot. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. Thanks to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Anagalactic fanfare and full accord membership as a fully recognized sapient species all on his own, preceding the rest of humanity's admittance, if we ever get admitted, to Charles E. Gannon, author of Trial by Fire. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. 